One of the nice things about covering the golden age of Montana historiography is that there's a lot written about it. One of the pitfalls is that there's a lot written about it. So this is going to be a 30,000 foot flyover of that uh, period. While Phillips and Burlingame added legitimacy of the trained professional historian to Montana's story, perhaps one of the greatest influence to this academic study of Montana came from a man who said of himself, I'm a newspaper man, not a historian. Even with these acknowledged shortcomings, a great deal of research in the Wilson-Meisner definition has gone into the preparation of this work. Meisner's definition was this, if you steal from one author, it's plagiarism. If you steal from many, it's research. This acerbic declaration came from Joseph Kinsey Howard in the acknowledgments of his book, Montana High, White, and Handsome, published in 1943. Howard was not a newcomer to uh, Montana or unknown. He was born in Oskaloosa, Iowa in 1906 to John R. and Josephine Howdy Kinsey Howard. Uh, the family moved to Canada uh, and lived there for several years, and John R. deserted the family, and, uh, which resulted in 1918, Josephine moving herself and her children to Great Falls, Montana, where Howard graduated from high school in 1923 and began working for the Great Falls Leader. Within three years, Howard became the news editor of the Leader, a position that he held until 1944 when he left to become the co-director of the Rockefeller Foundation University of Montana-funded Montana Study, a program dedicated to bringing opportunity for college education to rural Montana uh, residents uh, fostering the state's appreciative and spiritual standard of living and helping come up with ideas to stabilize rural communities. Although Joe Howard had many short stories and articles published in magazines, it wasn't until the publication of his first book, Montana High, White, and Handsome, that he received broad national critical acclaim. In 1946, he followed up with the publication of Montana Margins, a state anthology that used much of the material he gathered during his time with the Montana study. The next year, he received a Guggenheim Fellowship to gather research materials on the 19th century Métis rebellions in Canada, which resulted in the posthumous publication of Strange Empire in 1952. Given the constraints of this session in the interest of giving Jeff more than two minutes of time to close, uh, I'm going to just focus on Montana High, White, and Handsome. Uh, he wrote in the introduction, Here in Montana was a no-man's land to be looted by the strongest and as soon as possible abandoned. One owed it no allegiance. It was an inauspicious beginning for a treasure state, for this, for this established a social and economic pattern of spoliation, which subsequently was impressed on the laws, customs, and even minds of Montanans and their eastern explore, exploiters. So as evidenced by the opening, Howard had an axe to grind and he didn't hesitate to hone a fine edge to it and lay bare the sins of greed and exploitation as he saw it of Montana's natural resources. Uh, published by Yale University Press, the, the book generated wide critical acclaim nationally and as one pundit described him, the great talent of Joe Howard lay in his unceasing search for the truth. High, White, and Handsome was published at a time when Montana was reeling from two wars and two decades of uh, depression. And not surprisingly, Montanans had a low self-image at that time. As A.B. Guthrie Jr. pointed out, it was not widely pop wild wildly popular in Montana where it was sold but rarely displayed because, quote, the truth hurt. As he took to task the Anaconda Company, Honeyockers, railroads, and the rural state banking system. In this regard, uh, Howard's work was judged, critiqued on a number of levels, academically and personally. 
While his book received broad uh, public appeal outside the state, as already mentioned, in terms of history, it had an equal number of detractors and supporters. Historian W. Turrentine Jackson reviewed Howard's book for the Pacific Historical Review, where he commented on Howard's lack of objectivity and reliance on flawed resources such as Granville Stewart's 40 Years on the Frontier. While Jackson claimed that Howard was guilty of omissions and overemphasis, he did laud him for writing uh, more than a history, but also a regional study. He was also impressed with the expanse of Howard's bibliography and believed that there was a lot of potential use for other Montana historians to uh, work from his bibliography that he had prepared for the book. Perhaps one of the more intriguing reviews for Montana High, Wide, and Handsome came from Morris E. Garnsey of the University of Colorado. Published in the uh, American Economic Review, he wrote, It is a book which economists should read, not alone for its absorbing interest, but also for its vitality vitally significant uh, implications for economic planning and particularly for regional economic planning. Of particular interest to Garnsey was what he described as federal absenteeism when from 1919 to 1921 the Federal Reserve adopted the Federal Reserve Board adopted a policy of deflation, deflation without regard to how this action would reflect affect regional differences in the various sectors of the economy. As such, he cautioned that the Federal Reserve should take into account um, whenever they did these types of actions to base them not just on what was happening in the national scene, but also what was going on in the, un in the regional scene and how they would affect the underpinnings of the economy. In his tribute to Joseph Kinsey Howard, Norman A. Fox wrote, where, where then is the large common denominator in the wide coverage of Joe Howard's work? It lay in his constant desire to better the world in which he found himself and the never flagging fight that was always impersonal to him in that he could fight an idea yet respect the man who was his opponent so long as he could honor the honesty of the man's intent. He tilted not against windmills but against mighty machines, but he remembered always that no thing could be entirely right or entirely wrong. This was his greatness. This was the greatness of his work. A.B. Guthrie Jr. referred to Howard as Montana's conscience. He helped us understand that we could look critically at our history and identify what we did right, but more importantly, acknowledge what we did wrong. History wasn't prosaic or sacrosanct. It was seamed and fractured by human frailty and courage. If Howard was our conscience, then Kairos Tool was our soul, uh, telling us who we were as a people. Historian Robert Atherton referred to Tool's 20th Century Montana, a state of extremes, as a later day, a latter day Montana high, wide, and handsome, despite the fact that Tool took Howard to task regarding some of the assumptions that he made. However, the similarities were there in the engaging style of writing, the unflinching point of view, the fact that both were native sons who had a deep love for their state, and their writings reflected the outreach they felt at its exploitation. Tool over his 30-year career would emerge as Montana's premier historian, catapulting the Montana Historical Society into the 20th century as director, 1951 to 58, and publishing a number of polemic books and articles. But perhaps his greatest contribution to the study and promotion of Montana history took place in the classroom while he served as the A.B. Hammond Chair of Western History at the University of Montana from 1965 to 1981. His lectures and work with graduate students inspired students to embrace the history of their state and more importantly to engage in the academic study of it. As a fourth generation Montanan, he once commented, I am interested in the utilization of history for practical purposes. 
Toole showed no hesitation in taking on those companies and individuals he felt exploited Montana. A particular target that drew more than its share of criticism was the Anaconda Company, an interesting choice considering Toole's family tree. John R. Toole was president and Kenneth Ross, general manager of the Anaconda Company's lumber division in Bonner, Montana. As such, Toole adopted the persona of an old-style Patrickian reformer, exposing the deeds and correcting the errors of the past. Writing, this family has not been an ordinary one, which implies, of course, that it's been an extraordinary one. K. Ross Toole embraced that family legacy and lived up to the extraordinary reputation. In his review of Montana and Uncommon Land, Robert Athern, professor of history at the University of Colorado, applauded Toole's presentation of the facts in a way that didn't deluge the reader uh, with facts. He also noted that the author did his best work uh, on Montana's industrial transition, writing, the final chapter, Montana Heritage, very suitably concludes the book and underscores its predominant theme of continued extraction of Western resources by outside capital. The author ably points out that the dilemma of both liberals and conservatives of today, neither of whom can take a clear-cut position on the evil or good of development without encountering embarrassing historical inconsistencies in their own argument. All in all, the whole book, particularly the final chapter, make challenging and thought-provoking reading. It will both be damned and praised in Montana, but it will be read. In this alone, it has a big jump on many other books. Canonized for his contributions to the study and promotion of the relevance of Montana's history, this explains why his Montana and Uncommon Land still resonates, and his shade continues to send ripples through the stream of consciousness that is Montana history. Toole's writings and lectures formed a near liturgical text for future historians engaged in the study of Montana's history. The next duo contributed to the broad sweep that is Montana history, but unlike Howard and Toole, they did so without an axe to grind, offering for the first time a general overview that resulted in a relatively balanced and unbiased history of the state. Montana, A History of Two Centuries, authored by Michael P. Malone and Richard B. Rader, uh, history professor at the Montana State University was a book whose time had come. While giving a nod to Howard's High, Wide, and Handsome and Tools on Common Land, Vivian Paladin of the Montana Historical Society also acknowledged the contribution of historical works that focused on particular themes, periods, and regions, such as Clark Spence's Territorial Politics of Montana, Paul Sharp's Whoop Up Country, and Robert Atherton's High Country Empire. However, she noted that it was, quote, time for an overall up-to-date, calmly interpretive and orderly history of Montana from the dim pre-white beginnings to the perilous waters of the very recent past, including the present decade. She complimented Malone and Rader for avoiding the colorful for its own sake and presenting a history that embraced the broad sweep of Montana history while including the major peaks of the state's history. They took their work a step further in Paladin's opinion when they included chapters on the 1960s and 1970s, as well as, dramatic, as well as the dramatic changes that occurred with reapportionment, reorganization of state government, the 1972 CONCON, uh, and the new state constitution. But Malone and Rader also offered a look at art and literature, as well as social and cultural changes that were occurring in Montana. With the publication of Montana, A History of Two Centuries in 1976, there, was fun, there finally existed a broad sweep general history befitting the treasure state. In 1983, Dr. Robert Swartout wrote uh, an essay called Montana's History Decade, a review essay for Montana, the magazine of Western history. 
In this article, Swartout wrote, if the quality of the subsequent work writing is great enough, the special subject area may even enter a golden age, a time when the historian's spotlight focuses on an area with such clarity and insight that the era outshines most of all other periods of writing. I believe, in fact, that Montana history has matched the number of sophistication of the general studies produced during that 10-year period. He would give a nod to Howard and Toole for their early contributions, but their portrayal of Montana as a victim of self-serving corporate interests did not offer a penetrating over overview of Montana's history. As such, Montana, a history of two centuries, filled in many of the gaps left by Howard and Toole, as well as a precursor to um, other potential synthetic studies to follow. But he also believed that there were other studies published at the same time that added to this golden era of Montana's history in the 1970s. Uh, if Montana history of two centuries was a systematic synthesis of history of Montana, then not in precious metals alone, edited by the staff of the Montana Historical Society, proved the, quote, blood and muscle of any general survey. Taken from the collections of the Research Center and with half of the chapters dealing with the 20th century, Montana, with well, 20th century Montana, Swartout believed it compared favorably to Malone and Raider's uh, two centuries. Following in the same vein, but using uh, relying on photographs as primary source material, William Farr and K. Ross Toole wrote Montana Images of the Past, a compilation of historical photographs that Dr. Farr stipulated was not, quote, specifically designed to decorate and polish the surface of a living room coffee table. Once again, publication, the publication demonstrated the power of primary sources. Appealing to a broader non-historian audience was Clark C. Spence's Montana, A Bicentennial History. It was not reminiscent of Howard's bunkhouse storytelling style, but relied on what Swartout referred to as critical, as a critical, criti excuse me, critical, highly interpretive eye. Spence did not identify a single corporate entity as the antagonist, but rather speculated that it was Montana's concept of self and place that provided the drama that was Montana. Montana, Our Land and People, written by William Lang and Rex C. Myers in 1979, provided a history of the state for younger readers. Of special note was the geographically arranged bibliography compiled by Dave Walter, a research historian at the Montana Historical Society. Swartout lauded the, uh, the decade of the 1970s as the richest in Montana historiography with the publication of a number of general uh, histories that rarely uh, duplicated one another and instead complemented the overall history of the state. Less than a decade later, Professor Swartout would once again offer a review of the revised edition of Montana History of Two Centuries. Fifteen years after its publication, Malone and Reader would recruit William L. Lang, a former editor of Montana, the magazine of Western history, to assist them in a thorough revi revision of their uh, seminal work. While the revised text retained much of the original structure, each chapter was subject to minor and in some cases major changes with the addition of 35 pages of new material. The revisions took into account new scholarship as well as what Swartout notes was the economic and political strains that Montana has experienced in the past decade. He also observed that the final chapters tend to be more pessimistic than the earlier publication, but with a softening of their interpretation of the cattle and homesteading periods. Professor Swartout closed his review by stating unequivocally, this is a comprehensive revision 
of what is to this reviewer the single most important book ever published in the field of Montana history. It is so good, in fact, that it should serve as a model of histories of other western states. The interesting thing about all of these individuals that I just uh, uh, talked about in this, in this portion of my presentation is they all had ties to one another through the uh, university system in Montana and to the Montana Historical Society. Unfortunately, all the gentlemen that I spoke about passed um, at a fairly young age, and those connections, it seems, over time have fractured and kind of come apart. And so the attempt in this presentation is to discuss that issue, and that's what Jeff will follow up with. 